He was the only son of the merchant prince of Chicago in line to inherit millions, and yet he died mysteriously at the age of 37, his true cause of death possibly covered up by family influence on local Chicago newspapers. What really happened to Marshall Field Jr. on the night of November 22, 1905? I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Before we get into it, this episode deals with death by guns, brothels, and some other unsavory topics. While not explicit, this may not be a great episode for younger listeners. Discretion is advised. Marshall Field, the man who founded the chain of department stores that carried his name, was born in Massachusetts and moved to Chicago in 1856 at the age of 22, Through a series of business moves, including some time working for a dry goods company owned by Potter Palmer, Marshall Field was able to buy out all partners and create Marshall Field & Company, the biggest and most impressive department store in Chicago. Field's first marriage was to a woman named Nanny Scott, and together they had three children, a son, Louis, who died as an infant, a daughter, Ethel, and... Marshall Jr. Honestly, I have to resist going too much into Marshall Field's story, but I will likely revisit it in a future episode. Marshall Field, I may at times refer to him as senior going forward to make things more clear, became extremely wealthy through his department store and eventually began to share his wealth through philanthropic efforts. When it was decided Chicago would host an event celebrating the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's arrival in America, well, the 401st anniversary, actually, it was Marshall Field who became the largest stockholder and contributor of funds needed to complete the 600-acre World's Columbian Exposition of 1893. Of course, in addition to the pride he felt for his city, some also suggested he expected a large number of the 27 million visitors might also stop by his store and leave behind some cash. After the World's Fair ended, a significant recipient of Field's generosity was the Columbian Museum of Chicago, created to house artifacts from the recent World's Fair in Chicago. In honor of Field's contribution, the building was later renamed the Field Museum of Natural History, one of the largest museums of its kind in the world. Marshall Field Jr., sometimes referred to as Marshall Field II, was born in 1868. He attended the Harvard School at 21st Street and Indiana Avenue with a private tutor and eventually went off to Harvard University but didn't graduate, instead returning to Chicago, where in the fall of 1890, at the age of 22, he married Albertine Huck, an 18-year-old beauty and daughter of a prominent beer maker named Louis Huck. The home in which Marshall Field Jr. and his new bride lived, starting in 1890, was at 1919 Prairie Avenue, south of what we now call downtown, Purchased by Marshall Field Sr. for the newlyweds for $65,000, that's just shy of $2 million in today's money, it was a Queen Anne-style brick and red sandstone mansion designed in 1882, 
by architect Solon S. Beeman. The field home had 15 bedrooms, 9 bathrooms, 14 fireplaces, and just over 21,000 square feet of living space. Just in case you think they live like peasants in this shack, it also had a coach house. Marshall Field Sr. lived just down the street at 1905 South Prairie Avenue. If you were not familiar with the history of Prairie Avenue in Chicago, it was called Millionaire's Row. Before he built his mansion in what would become the Gold Coast, Potter Palmer lived there, as well as George Pullman, Philip Armour, and others. In 1893, 77 millionaires reportedly lived on Prairie Avenue. In the fall of 1892, Marshall Field Jr. and his bride Albertine welcomed their firstborn child, naming him Marshall Field. Sadly, newborn Marshall died just 13 days later. A year after that, on September 28, 1893, the couple welcomed another son, also naming him Marshall. They went on to have another son, Henry, and a daughter, Gwendolyn. A fourth child, a son, also died after only having lived a few days. Marshall Field Jr. didn't seem to have much interest in eventually taking over the family business. Actually, based on reports from back in the day, it appears he liked to travel and live the life of an independently wealthy husband and father. If I sound envious, well, I am. On November 22, 1905, Marshall Field Jr. was found shot in his home. Here's what was carried in the newspapers at the time. Chicago's Interocean newspaper reported Field, quote, shot and perhaps fatally wounded himself at his residence, 1919 Prairie Avenue, shortly before 6 o'clock last night, end quote. The November 23rd Chicago Tribune included the headline, Marshall Field Jr. shoots himself, accidentally discharges automatic revolver, bullet entering abdomen and perforating liver, chances of life are slim. The Tribune article explained the bullet entered his left side just below the ribs, missing the stomach and intestines, but plowed through, their words, not mine, the edge of the liver, perforating the spleen and stopping near the spine. The Tribune also went on to report the conversation Marshall Field Jr. had with a butler, a man called Lowe, after Lowe discovered him. This is how it was written in the paper. I shot myself, said Mr. Field, slowly and with difficulty. I shot myself with that revolver accidentally. It, it kind of reads like a horrible script, doesn't it? There are a lot of conflicting reports about who was home and whether anyone allegedly heard the shot, but it is known that Field's wife, Albertine, was out with their son, Marshall Field III, who was in poor health at the time. They arrived home to see Marshall Field Jr. being loaded into an ambulance. Marshall Field Sr. was in New York, having gotten remarried two months before, and upon hearing the news, secured a special train of four cars to speed the couple back to Chicago in 18 hours. We'll be right back. If you're enjoying this episode, be sure to check out episode 219, which looks at the mysterious death of another heir to a Chicago department store fortune, Montgomery Ward Thorne, who died suddenly at the age of 20 in 1954, setting off a battle for his money. You can find that episode available now wherever you are listening to this one.
Marshall Field Jr. was brought to Mercy Hospital at 2537 South Prairie Avenue, where doctors operated on him, successfully removing the bullet. The newspapers that week carried very detailed explanations about a planned trip to Wisconsin that Marshall Field Jr. had been planning. They also explained that he had just purchased the automatic revolver and wasn't familiar with the mechanism, likely leading up to him mistakenly shooting himself. I'll get to all the problems with this in a few moments. Over the next few days, the doctors would issue statements explaining partial paralysis and gangrene of the bowels. This was before antibiotics were widely used, but always offering a glimmer of hope. Marshall Field Jr. held on for five days before succumbing to his injuries. On November 27, 1905, his wife and father reportedly by his side. A few days after his death, an inquest was held by the coroner's office and a verdict was quickly returned. According to the article in the Chicago Tribune, the coroner's jury stated, quote, There was no reason whatever for believing that Marshall Field Jr. came to his death by another means than that of accidental shooting by his own hand. End quote. The coroner, Peter M. Hoffman, went on to say, quote, I desire to make a statement for the protection of my office and for the sake of the family and friends of Mr. Field. Because of his position, his wealth, and his prominence, many superfluous rumors have been circulated as to how the shooting occurred. I say superfluous because, although they came from many sources, I have been unable to find any foundation for them. Since the day of the shooting, I've spent days and nights hunting down the rumors and have found that there was no cause for their circulation. I have been assisted by one of my best deputies, and every report has been run down and proved false. End quote. As for the superfluous rumors, well... According to the 1966 book The Sunday Gentleman by Irving Wallace, although married, Marshall Field Jr. was known to travel to the Levy District of Chicago, primarily around the 2100 south block of Dearborn, to visit the Everlay Club, a high-class, high-priced brothel where visitors could partake in time with women who were paid to entertain wealthy men, gambling, and other vices. Regular patrons of the Everlay included poet Edgar Lee Masters, novelist Theodore Dreiser, columnist Ring Lardner, industrialist John Warren Gates, Boxer Jack Johnson, actor John Barrymore, and Prince Heinrich of Prussia. The Everlay, run by two sisters, had very high standards, not only for the women they employed, but of those who were allowed to enter. Honestly, the whole Everlay club scene is so bonkers. I'm going to save a lot of this for a future episode. Just know this was not a seedy establishment. Chicago's men of power and influence were known to frequent it without shame. A citizen of Marshall Field Jr.'s standing would have been welcomed, well, certainly his money would have been, and not felt out of place. (music) 
One of the most persistent rumors is a variation of this. Marshall Field Jr. was at the Everlay Club the night he was shot and had gotten into an argument with one of the girls. To defend herself, she grabbed a gun from his jacket and fired it at him. Not wanting the law to investigate and to keep this aspect of Junior's life out of the press, Everlay management had Marshall Field return to his home, which wasn't far away, and the cover-up began. This rumor, by the way, was refuted by someone that claimed it was started by a rival brothel to hurt business at the Everlay. I only saw one mention of this being a suicide, which based on the angle of the bullet wound would have been a terribly ineffective way for Marshall Field Jr. to take his own life. So I'm going to discount that. As for the automatic pistol intended for use on a hunting trip to Wisconsin, well, I don't know a lot about hunting. And if there are any avid hunters listening, please correct me if I'm way off. But from everything I do know about hunting, an automatic pistol isn't really something you'd use to hunt deer or anything else on a Wisconsin hunting trip. The story about Marshall Field Jr. cleaning the automatic pistol in preparation for the hunting trip when it went off also seems a little wonky, and here's why. If he was sitting at a table with the weapon in front of him when it went off, it would have hit him straight on. How a gun he was cleaning could go off, striking him from his left side under his ribs, seems a little questionable. It was also purported he dropped the gun and it went off, but that would have meant the bullet would have shot up into his torso, but the wound was more horizontal. Kind of fishy, right? Marshall Field Jr. was buried at Graceland Cemetery on the north side of Chicago, Two months later, Marshall Field Sr. died after developing pneumonia after playing golf in the snow at a golf course in Wheaton. Ah, rich people. Sr. was also buried at Graceland Cemetery. Author Karen Abbott's fascinating 2007 book, Sin in the Second City, Madams, Ministers, Playboys, and the Battle for America's Soul, included this admission from a former police reporter. Quote, when young Marshall Field was shot in a Chicago resort, I was one of the coterie who wrote that artless story of how he came to his death while cleaning a revolver in the privacy of his own room. You see, the man died, and some sort of explanation was necessary. And so long as the Marshall Field interests continue to advertise extensively, no newspaper will publish the story. In 1913, eight years after Field Jr.'s death, a woman named Vera Scott was arrested in Los Angeles. During questioning, Scott claimed it was she who shot Marshall Field Jr. by accident at the Everlay Club during a wild party. Although bloodied and weak, Field was coherent and insisted on going home in a taxi. Vera Scott claimed Marshall Field Sr. paid her $20,000 to leave town and never mention the incident again. Newspapers all over the country picked up this story, but it was oddly missing from Chicago papers. A Marshall Field and Company spokesman dismissed Scott's story as, quote, the ravings of a drug-mad unfortunate. That is actually the name of my upcoming autobiography. Pretty great. The Daybook, a Chicago newspaper that did not accept advertising and had a young writer named Carl Sandberg on its staff during that paper's short run, went on a bit of a rant regarding the Vera Scott situation. 
Their November 28, 1913 issue included the headline, The Field Family Gets Special Privileges in the Newspapers. Because it's enormously rich, has a big store, and spends big money for advertising, some sidelights on the confession of the woman who says she shot Marshall Field Jr. Here is a slightly abridged version of the article. It requires no stretch of the imagination to understand why Chicago newspapers suppressed a big news story that other big newspapers all over the country published. Then in all caps. The Marshall Field store is located in Chicago and spends many thousands of dollars annually with the newspapers that suppressed the story. To Chicago newspapers, there appears to be something out of the ordinary, if not sacred, about the name of Field. When the late Marshall Field, the merchant prince, was alive, the Chicago newspapers slobbered all over him every chance they got. He was made one of Chicago's gods through the influence of the newspapers that got monthly checks from the big store for newspaper advertising. Uh, Not pulling any punches, the daybook continued with. Marshall Field's powerful influence in Chicago was the power of his vast fortune, and he was the greatest exploiter of labor Chicago ever knew. The men, women, and children who worked in his big store were paid miserably small wages, yet no newspaper dared make a fight for a living wage for them because the newspapers were getting part of the money he made out of cheap labor. When his son died, it was rumored all over town that he had been shot in the Everlay Club by a woman, but there was no danger of newspaper publicity that would be disagreeable to the Field family. Marshall Field Jr.'s widow, Albertine Huckfield, got remarried and moved to England, dying in her early 40s. Henry Field, one of Marshall Field Jr.'s two sons, died at the age of 21 after a short illness. Marshall Field III went on to many pursuits, including starting the Chicago Sun newspaper, which eventually merged with the Chicago Times newspaper to create the Chicago Sun-Times, still in print today. When Marshall III died in 1956, he left $30 million, that's a little more than $300 million in today's money, to Field Charities. When Marshall Field Sr. died, he left $125 million to his two grandsons, Marshall III and Henry. No mention of anything being left to granddaughter Gwendolyn. Gwendolyn outlived them all, marrying and having kids before passing away at the age of 87. As for Prairie Avenue, the wealthy started to move to other parts of the city as industry started to creep into that area. In 1923, that area was zoned for manufacturing, and many of the mansions of Millionaire's Row began to fall to the wrecking ball. What was left of that district was designated a landmark on December 27, 1979. If you're wondering about the famed Marshall Field Jr. Mansion at 1919 South Prairie Avenue, well, it was sold a few years after the death of Marshall Field Jr. and was used by the Gatlin Institute starting in 1910 for treatment of alcoholism. The Gatlin Institute had locations across the country and claimed their treatment, quote, cures drink habit in three days, end quote. 
It is unclear how long the Gatlin Institute was there, but I found a few more listings for the building at 1919 Prairie Avenue over the years, including one in 1980 offering it for sale for $85,000. By then, it had sat empty for four years after being used as the Monterey Convalescent Nursing Home for four decades. Most of the radiators had been stolen and many of the windows were missing. A unique fixer-upper opportunity, to be sure. In 2004, a Chicago Tribune article detailed renovations that had begun at the old place. After six years of neglect, investors had stepped in, determined to restore the exterior and divide up the inside into six residential homes. The developers must have done something right, because in 2007, the work put into restoring the old field mansion was recognized by the Landmarks Division of the Chicago Department of Planning and Development with a Chicago Landmark Award for Preservation Excellence. Last I checked, homes within the building have an asking price of close to $2 million. Whether the rumors surrounding the death of Marshall Field Jr. are just that, rumors, the stories behind the Field family certainly add much to Chicago's history. I'm hopeful you enjoyed today's episode about the mysterious death of Marshall Field Jr. As always, if you have questions about anything covered today, Anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I'll have plenty of pictures and items related to the events discussed in this episode on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages throughout the coming week, as well as links to books and such if you'd like to learn more. Anything purchased through those links, not just the items listed, may earn this page a small commission and help offset production costs. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on those social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at Angel Eyes Art on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. If you have a moment, please rate and review the podcast and tell a friend about it. It really does make a difference. I will be back soon with another chapter in Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.